Good morning, everybody. Good morning to all you folks joining us online. We're so glad to have you uh, worship with us this morning. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5 today. And while you're turning there, I want to talk to all you ladies for just a moment. We've got a great opportunity coming up for you on March 10th and 11th. Our women's ministry, we have a great, great women's ministry here is hosting a leadership, or excuse me, a, a women's conference called Stronger. Got a nationally known uh, uh, singer, songwriter, speaker coming in, Tammy Trent, and also Abanita Matney, who is the oldest daughter of Ajay and Indu Law, will be here to share, and it's going to be a great event. But you need to sign up today because this weekend is the last weekend for early bird registration. You can save money, and I know that all of you want to be a good steward of the monies that God has entrusted to you. So you need to do that today. And by the way, let me just tell you, you drive us crazy here at Mount Pleasant, not just you ladies, but all of you who wait to the last minute to do everything, okay? So I spend half my time as a senior pastor here talking my staff down off the ledge because you folks wait to the last minute to sign up for everything. So get that done today. Uh, We want to make sure you have the best possible experience. And in order to do that, it's helpful for us to know how many are coming. So you can do that in the commons area today when you leave. You can do it at home online. Okay, well, we're working our way verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And a couple weeks ago, we came to a very significant portion of Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It begins with a, a verse, a passage of scripture known as the Beatitudes. And we're in the Beatitudes. So if you got your Bibles open there to Matthew chapter 5, I want you to stand with me wherever you are in reverence and respect for God's word. And uh, you follow along. We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 today, but as we've done the last few weeks, we're going to read the entire section of the Beatitudes uh, as we read the scriptures together. Follow along. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always pray God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. As we begin this morning, let's just acknowledge together what an unusual passage of scripture this is. The Beatitudes is an unusual passage of scripture. And I say that because it's filled with one seemingly contradictory statement after another. That's especially true when you understand what Jesus means when he uses the word blessed. And he uses that word nine separate times throughout the Beatitudes. On the most practical level, I've already told you, on the most practical level, that word means happy. And so Jesus is saying, for example, as we think about the first two Beatitudes we've already looked at, he's saying happy are the spiritually bankrupt, because that's what it means to be poor in spirit, to recognize that on your own you're spiritually bankrupt. He's saying happy are the sad. That's what he means when he says happy are those who mourn, because the mourning he's talking about there is a recognition of your own sin and the sorrow that comes from recognizing your sin. It just doesn't seem to make sense. There's something about these Beatitudes that just don't sound right. But These Beatitudes reflect the fundamental truth about God that all of us need to understand as followers of Christ. And here it is, God's ways are different. How many of you know that's true? 
And that's such a powerful truth for us to understand. In fact, say that with me. Let's say it together. God's ways are different. If we can understand that, that could help us make progress in our Christian lives. I read the story one time about a bicycle race in India that's very different. The object of the race is to go the shortest possible distance within a specified time. And so at the start of the race, all the bicycles line up at the starting line, and then a gun sounds to begin the race, and all the bicycles, as best they can, stay pretty much in the same place. They stay put. The racers are disqualified if they tip over or if one of their feet touches the ground to try to help balance their bicycles. And so here's what happens. Once the gun sounds and the race begins, the people on the bicycles try to inch forward just enough to keep their bike balanced without falling. When the allotted time for the race is up, another gun sounds, and the person who's gone the farthest distance is the loser, while the person who's gone the shortest distance is the winner. Now, imagine what it would be like to get into that race but not understand what the rules were, okay? To think it was just like a normal race. And so when the gun sounds, man, you start pedaling fast and furious and you tear out from the starting line. And after just a short time, you look back and you're really happy because all the other racers are all the way back at the starting line. And you think, not only am I winning this thing, I'm setting a new world record. I'm doing this in a record time. And then the gun sounds again, and you think that you're the unquestionable winner, but you're not. You're the unquestionable loser because you misunderstood how the race works. Well, listen, I think about that story when I read the Beatitudes. Because in the Beatitudes, in a sense, what Jesus is doing is he's given us new rules or he's given us new principles for the race of life. And we understand by these new rules that winning is not found in following our natural inclinations and winning is not found in following our natural abilities. Winning is found in complete surrender to his teaching and his plan and his will. And God's ways, we already said it once, God's ways are different. Now, are different. now on the surface, it doesn't make sense, but listen to me. Jesus Especially, this is what we see in the Beatitudes, Jesus does not speak to the surface of our lives. He speaks to us on a much deeper level. He speaks to our hearts. And that's what makes the Beatitudes so important, okay? God's ways are different. We see that here in the Beatitudes. And we got to pay attention because God's ways are right. So, as we begin, let me just remind you of the two foundational truths that we need to understand in looking at the Beatitudes. The first one is that God promises happiness that's real. Uh, it's what we see here. Remember I told you the, the word blessed, Jesus uses nine different times for the Beatitudes. Uh, that word is commonly, tra- or excuse me, uh, yeah, that word, uh, it, it, the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word makarios. Makarios, we talked about this. It's commonly translated blessed in our English Bibles, but the most, uh, the, the closest English equivalent to the word is happy. And so what we see in the Beatitudes is God promises us happiness that's real. I know that sounds shallow and superficial because we think of happiness primarily as an emotion, which is shallow and superficial. It can be here one moment and gone the next. It's subject to the circumstances of our lives. But this word makarios, this blessed life, this happiness that God promises, is not something that's shallow and superficial. It's something, it's a, it's a deep down inner contentment that's not affected by the circumstances of life. So it doesn't matter on the, on the surface whether you're happy or sad, you still have this blessing, you still have this godly happiness down deep inside of you. The second thing is uh, real happiness comes in unexpected ways. That's the second foundational truth for the Beatitudes. We primarily think that 
happiness as a result of our actions. If I do this, I'm going to have a happy life. If I do these things, I'm going to have a blessed life. But what Jesus is telling us in the Beatitudes is that our happiness, our experiencing this happiness that God offers, this happiness that's real, is not, a part, is not about our actions. It's about our attitudes. And so the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, are a list of the kind of internal attitudes we need to have to experience this blessed life, this happiness that's real. Now, so far, we've talked about the attitude of being poor in spirit, and we've talked about the attitude of mourning. This morning, we're going to talk about an attitude of meekness, meekness. Let's try to understand that the same way we have the last couple of weeks by asking some questions. Write down in your notes, what does it mean to be meek? That's a great place to start because the word meek is easily misunderstood, especially in our modern American culture, because in our modern American culture, it's a word that's often associated with being passive or being spiritless or being weak. But that is not at all what Jesus is talking about here. He uses the Greek word praos. I'll put it up on the screen, and you can see it. That's the word translated meek here in our English Bibles. And it basically means strength under control. That's how we need to understand it. You've probably heard that before if you've ever studied the Beatitudes. The word meek, this Greek word praos, means strength under control. Oftentimes in our English Bibles, the same word praos is translated gentle. Sometimes it's translated as humble. All of those are accurate translations. It means strength under control. A common way this word praos would be used in ancient days would be to describe a wild animal. Let's say like a wild horse, for example, that had been captured and then had been broken by a trainer so that it would be more useful for the purpose of being more useful. Now, the strength of that wild animal, that horse would still be there, but the difference is now that it's been broken, it is submissive strength, and submissive strength is much more useful. That's where we get the concept strength under control to define meekness. Now, here's the deal. It is absolutely essential that we realize that Jesus is not talking about weakness. To be meek, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. To be meek does not mean in any way, shape, or form to be weak. We have to understand that. Meekness is strength that is submissive. uh, Meekness is strength that is under control. And this attitude of meekness is the will of God for all of us who claim to be followers of Christ. It's the will of God for me in my life, every day of my life. And if you're a Christian, being meek is the will of God for you every single day of your life, all of your life. And that's what we need to understand. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you also can see as we go through the Beatitudes that there's a continuing progression that takes place here with the Beatitudes. We're just, we're just three Beatitudes in. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And now he says, blessed are those who are meek. So he begins with the poor in spirit. And we understand that that means blessed are those who recognize that on their own, they're spiritually bankrupt and without hope. What does that mean? That means when we come to God on our own with the very best that we have to offer, it's not good enough because all of us on our own, no matter how good we are, are still spiritually bankrupt. And recognizing that is what it means to be poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And what that means is the next step in the progression is we recognize that the reason why we're spiritually bankrupt is because we're all sinners. That's something that all of us have in common. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We might be boring sinners, we might be spectacular sinners, we might be somewhere in between, but we're all sinners. Somebody say amen to that. Okay? But Jesus is saying that once you recognize that, then there's 
the right response is the genuine sorrow over that sin, over that sin that causes you to be spiritually bankrupt. And that's what he means by blessed are those who mourn. And now we come to the third one, and he says, blessed are the meek. Okay, and what he means by that is this. Listen, when you recognize you're poor in spirit and you mourn over your sin, the next natural step for you is not to be aggressive and assertive. It's to be humble and submissive. It's to be meek. And so there's this progression that takes place throughout the Beatitudes. Each one is connected to the other, and with every Beatitude, we take a significant step forward. But the person who is meek, this is what we need to understand today, is the person who trusts in and submits to God alone with everything they have. You take all your strength, all your power, all your resources, all your influence, all of everything that you have, and you submit it to God, and you trust in God alone, no matter what the circumstance. Now, that's not always easy to do. It's not always easy to do, but that's what it means when Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Now, I want to show you uh, an example of what this looks like using a passage from the Old Testament. So hold your place in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to hear your pages turning to the left until you get all the way over to the book of Psalms. I want to hear some pages turning this morning. I'm listening close. All right, I hear some. Good. I want you to find Psalm 37 in particular. Psalm 37, one of the great, great psalms. This is a psalm written by David. I've told you over the years as we've talked especially about family and we've talked about raising children that one of the things that I did when my children were born uh, that has been helpful to me and meaningful to, to me and I think helpful to them is I chose a psalm for each one of them that I would pray over their lives, and I've been doing that since they were little bitty, and uh, now they're adults, and I still pray the words of these psalms over their lives on a consistent basis. For my son, Andrew, it was Psalm 112, and for my daughter, Tricia, it was Psalm 37. Not the entire psalm, but certain passages, certain verses from Psalm 37, and we're going to see some of those today. But I want you to uh, look with me at Psalm 37, verses 1 through 9. You follow along as I read. David begins and says, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. Now stop right there and look up here at me, okay? And let me just say this. David, as he begins the psalm, is describing a difficult situation. He says, do not fret over, or excuse me, because of evil men. Now let's just all acknowledge that one of the things that makes life difficult is that life is oftentimes unfair, right? Everyone say right. I mean, that is one of the most fundamental realities of life. It's unfair. And sometimes it's infuriating because it's out of our control, and sometimes it's infuriating because we see people do things that victimize other people, maybe even victimize us or victimize people that we love. And we just see things that just aren't right. They just aren't right. And it just drives us crazy. I don't know about you, but it makes me crazy. And there's, there's, there's a couple of things going on in my life right now, nothing, nothing really dramatic or having a negative impact. But there, there are situations where somebody has done something that's just wrong, and it's caused ongoing problems, the ripple of their actions, the ripples of their actions, the waves of their actions just continue to spread out. And it seems like every day I find out some new uh, uh, consequence of what they've done, some new person that's been victimized, some new hurt that's happened because of this. And every single thing within me, every natural instinct and inclination I have is to lash out and do something about it. How many of you can relate to that? But that's not what it means to be meek. And that's not the right thing for me to do in this situation. And so what David is doing as he begins Psalm 37, he's kind of painting that picture. He says, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. And then he goes on to say, for like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. But then he begins to give us instructions. This is what we are to do. 
in light of evil men and their actions. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make the righteousness, your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil, for evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Stop right there. Stop right there. Now, David is painting this picture where, where evil men make life difficult, where evil men create difficulties for us when we look at them and we think perhaps what they're doing is wrong, what they're doing is unfair, what they're doing is hurting innocent people. And yet instead of trying to take matters in our own hands and solving the problem ourselves, instead of just rushing in on our own strength, he gives us these instructions, these kinds of instructions. Let me just mention five of them. He says, trust in the Lord. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. He says, commit your way to the Lord. He says, be still before the Lord. And then he really gets personal and he says, refrain from anger. And I would add to that something he says in the very last line. He says, refrain from anger and hope in the Lord. And he says, for evil men, this is how he concludes the passage, for evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the earth. Now listen, this affects us on all different kinds of levels. The other day, I just live really close to the church, but I, I drive down Bluff Road every day and I come to this stop sign here at Bluff Road in Fairview. And the other day, I can't tell you how many times in over 15 years people have, have had wrecks at that stop sign or people have just blown to that stop sign. So I was coming to work the other morning and a woman in an SUV was, SUV was driving towards Highway 37 and just blew right through the stop sign. It's just the providence of God that I happened to make sure that, to look that she, uh, to notice that she wasn't gonna stop. She didn't think about she just blew right through, and I'm oh, and I wanted to whip my car to the right and chase her down and get up in her window and say, you could have killed me, and just made her feel really awful. I wanted to make her feel really awful. I'm not suggesting she was evil. I'm going to leave that up to God. But there are things like that, and then there are much, much bigger things. And what's our response? Well, our response to me sounds like submission to God. It sounds like strength under control. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Refrain from anger. And he says in the end, I love this. He says in the very end of this passage, he says, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land earth. Now, you know what you have in Psalm 37 verses 1 through 9? You have an Old Testament parallel passage to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. David just gives us a lot more detail. That, friends, everybody look at me, that's what it looks like to be meek. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. There's probably somebody here or somebody listening to me online who's thinking, but wait a minute, Pastor, aren't there places in the Bible where we're told that we do need to stand up, we do need to take action? I say, yeah, there are, there are places like that, but we're not talking about places like that now. We're talking about the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And just in case you're tempted to think, well, that's just a teaching, one of those teachings that sounds good in theory, but it, it's really not practical, it doesn't work. Well, let's just talk about some times where it did work. How about the Old Testament story of Joseph? 
If you, if you spend any time in church, or especially when you were a kid growing up in Sunday school, you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. His life is <clears throat> recorded from Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50. He was the youngest of many brothers. Her father's name was Jacob. But because he was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, he was Jacob's favorite. And Jacob didn't hide that fact. And so Joseph's older brothers became very angry and bitter and jealous of Joseph, and one day it boiled over, and remember what they did? They sold him off into slavery. They took his coat of many colors, they covered it with the blood of an animal, took it back to their father Jacob, and said, hey, don't know what happened, but Joseph must have been killed by a wild animal. And Joseph, meanwhile, was on his way to Egypt, and he was probably only about a, te- a, a 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old teenage boy, taken from his home and everything that he knew. And once he got into Egypt, he was sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar. But here's the thing. David, I mean, excuse me, Joseph had a spiritual heart, and he had to have recognized, even in the difficulty of all of this, that God was still with him. Because when he was sold as a slave to Potiphar, we're told in the text of the scripture, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and Potiphar put him in charge of all of his home to where he didn't even worry about any detail related to his home. But remember, Potiphar was not a good husband. He must have neglected his wife. She cast a lustful eye on, on Joseph, wanted to have a physical relationship with him and he refused. And so one day she accused him of sexual assault and now Joseph winds up in prison. But if you read the text, we see that God's hand was still with him because the Bible says while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so because Joseph had the ability from God to interpret dreams one day, that that uh, gift got out to Pharaoh and who had had a dream that couldn't be interpreted. Joseph interpreted the dream and long story short, Joseph is, re- is taken from prison and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And he's got this position, this really important position of storing up food during a time of plenty for a time of famine that's about to come over the land. And Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Well, that famine spread to Joseph's homeland and one day his brothers came to buy food. They didn't recognize Joseph. Why would they? They thought he... They, they'd probably forgotten about him a long time ago, and now he's dressed in the garb of an Egyptian. But he recognizes them. He recognizes them as the ones who had turned on him. And I want you to think about something with me. In that moment, Joseph had the opportunity, he had the power, the resources, and he had the right. He had the right because of what they had done to him to exact his revenge. But is that what Joseph did? No. He did just the opposite and demonstrated love and compassion and forgiveness to his brothers. And he ended up bringing his entire family to Egypt and caring for them. And now his brothers were scared to death when their father Jacob died that Joseph was now going to exact his revenge and that maybe he had just been nice to them out of respect for their father. When Joseph found that out, listen to what Joseph said to them in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. 20, He said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, let me tell you what Joseph demonstrated for us there in that example. He demonstrated the reality of what Jesus was talking about when he said, blessed are the meek, because he had all this power and all this authority and all this opportunity and all this right to do exactly what he wanted to do, but he chose instead to be submissive to God and to trust it to God with strength under control, and that's what it means to be meek. How about the story of David? Many colorful stories in the life of David in the Old Testament. You know, when he killed Goliath, King Saul, the first king of Israel, took David home with him to the palace and made him basically a part of his kingdom. And David uh, became such an effective, skilled warrior that Saul, who was a deeply insecure and unstable man, eventually grew 
insecure and jealous of David, and you know the story, tried to kill him on multiple occasions. And so there was a time in David's life when he was literally running and hiding for his life. The Bible says he was running and hiding in a place called the desert of En Gedi. I've been there before. It is a desolate, barren place, nothing but, but dirt and rocks and, and holes and caves. And he was hiding from Saul and his armies, hiding for his life. On one particular occasion, uh, we read about this in 1 Samuel 24, David and his men were hiding in a cave. And Saul, inexplicably, the Bible says, came into the cave. Now, there's no delicate way to say this. He came in there to go to the bathroom. That's what he did. He didn't realize David was in there, but now Saul is alone in the cave. He doesn't have his men around him, and he's in a vulnerable position. David could have easily taken out his sword. He could have crept up behind Saul, and he could have slit his throat, and it could have been over right then and there. In fact, that's what David's, some of David's men urged him to do. In 1 Samuel 24 and verse 4, we read these words, the men. These are David's men. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. But you know what David did? Instead of taking Saul's life, he crept up behind him. He took his sword, remember, and he cut off a corner of his robe. That was it. Just a corner of his robe. Saul finished his business, and went outside. And David, the text tells us, tells us was, listen to me, he was conscience-stricken just for having cut off the corner of King Saul's robe because it seemed like the, an act of disrespect to him. And so when Saul got outside of the cave and there was a sufficient distance for safety, David goes outside of the cave and he calls out to Saul, and this is what he says to him in 1 Samuel 24, verses 12 and 13. He says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Now listen, David could have easily killed Saul, but he didn't. He had the opportunity, just like Joseph, he had the opportunity, he had the power, he had the resources, and he had the right because Saul had mistreated him so badly, but he didn't do it. You know why? Because he was demonstrating strength and power under control, a submissive kind of strength and power. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the meek. He chose to let God deal with Saul, however it would come. He trusted it to God. How about the story of Jesus? Jesus is described in the scriptures on multiple occasions as being meek. Let me give you one example. Don't turn anywhere in your Bible. Just listen. When the apostle Peter was writing his first letter, his first epistle, which is First Peter in our New Testament, he was writing it to a group of Christians who had been scattered because of persecution. And some of them were dealing with some really difficult circumstances in their lives. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, this is how Jesus addressed it. He said, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Now note this next phrase, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he says this about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted, listen to me, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Do you know what that is? That's the reality of what it means to be meek. It's submission it's strength under control. I don't know what you might be going through in your life right now, but I can tell you this. No amount of mistreatment that you or I could ever experience in our lives can compare to the extreme injustice experienced by Jesus when he was in this world. On a human level, he was deceived, he was betrayed, he was beaten and brutalized, he was mocked, he was railroaded through multiple bogus trials, and he was sentenced to die on a trumped-up charge. 
That's just a summary of what his life was like from a physical standpoint. On a spiritual level, as he hung on the cross, the Bible says every single sin ever committed by you or me or anyone was placed on him. And he, when he hung on the cross, suffered the punishment of the sins of the world or for the sins of the world. And the Bible says he did it willingly. Now, he was God in human flesh. He certainly he certainly had the power, and he certainly had the opportunity. And from a certain perspective, he certainly had the right to say, I'm not going to do this. I don't deserve this, but he didn't. Instead, he entrusted himself to God the Father and this ultimate plan, knowing that, yeah, while he was suffering today, the time was going to come. The Apostle Paul describes it like this, where he would receive the name that is above all names and one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. That's what it looks like to be meek. It's power and it's strength under control. There is, listen to me, there is nothing even remotely connected to weakness when it comes to being meek because it takes great strength and it takes great courage to be submissive to God and to trust God when everything inside of you screams out to do something about it yourself. It does not mean to be weak. And this attitude of meekness is the will of God for all of us. Write down the second question really quickly. What is the result of being meek? Well, the result, first of all, is that blessing we talked about in the beginning. Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. That that deep level of, of real happiness, contentment down deep inside of us, that's the blessing. But beyond that, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. For they will inherit the earth. Now, the word that Jesus uses for inherit there in the original language of the New Testament is not a unique word. It means pretty much what you would expect it to mean, that you're going to one day receive uh, that which is apportioned or allotted to you. That's basically the meaning behind that word. Uh, inherit when he says inherit the earth. But here's what, I, here's what it says to me. Hang on to this. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, not only do you receive the blessing or the happiness that we've talked about each and every week, but you also receive the assurance that one day when God reclaims this world, this world that you and I live in now is not the world that God wants it to be. It's, it's sinful, it's fallen, it's marred in so many different ways. It's filled with suffering and hurt and pain and sorrow and things that are unfair, and you can go on and on and on. But one day God's going to reclaim and redeem this world. And when he reclaims and he redeems it, on that one day, he's going to make all things new. And when he makes all things new, he's going to make all wrongs right. And one day, if you are meek, you're going, to inherit, you're going to inherit a portion of that. And not only are you going to inherit a portion of that, but you're going to rule and reign with God forever. The final question is this, and Brian, you can come. How do I know if I'm meek? Well, let me just ask you this question because it's really simple. Where do, you put, where do you place your trust? How do I, how do, Pastor, how do I know if I'm meek? Where do you place your trust? Every day of your life, where do you place your trust? In yourself or in God? Now, we can say that we put our trust in God till we're blue in the face, but is that, the, is that demonstrated on a practical level in the way that we live our lives? Or are we filled with a sense of pride that causes us to trust primarily in ourselves where do you place your trust? That's a question that only you can answer. I can't answer it for you. I can only answer it for myself. 
Where do you place your trust? You know what? Every single day of our lives, there's something we need to say. Every, every single day when I wake up in the morning, I can say this with integrity. Every single day of my life when I wake up, the first thing that goes through my mind is, Lord, thank you for another day of life. I don't take life for granted. But another thing that we should all say, and you, neither should any of us, another thing that we should all say, and this is in keeping with what it means to be meek, is this. We should say, Lord, I surrender my life and everything in it to you today and every day. And that's how we can take a positive step toward being meek. So read that with me off the screen. Let me hear your voices. Lord, I surrender my life and everything in it to you today and every day. Let's read one more time. Lord, I surrender my life and everything in it to you today and every day. Write that down in your notes. Make that your prayer. How do I know if I'm meek? Where do you put your trust? Being meek is the will of God for all of us. It's not weakness. It's the ultimate, ultimate example of strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you.